Доброго вечора, ми з України. Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs podcast. My name is Patrick Gray and uh, yeah, we've got some special guest intro music this week. Uh, this is Good Evening, Where Are You From? by Ukrainian duo ProBase and Hardy. And yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge and congratulate all of our Ukrainian listeners on pushing the Russian military out of all of Kharkiv Oblast quite sort of unexpectedly, at least as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And uh, yeah, good job. This week's show is sponsored by Stairwell, and uh, yeah, I got in the weeds with its founder and CEO, Mike Wyasek, last week, and we've recorded a YouTube product demo, which is now live. Uh, and if you're in the threat hunting business, you should definitely, definitely check that demo out. Stairwell's platform lets you do threat hunting on every single executable file in your organization. Uh, it also lets you do stuff like overlay malware feeds on top of uh, you know your files. Uh, sort of like imagine a virus total with all of your executables in it as well. You know, DLLs and scripts and stuff as well, but uh, you, you know, you get what I mean. Uh, it's really, really cool. And, and it reminds me of the better NDR platforms, but for files. Uh, file. Uh, you know, I joked with Mike, he should have called it File Explorer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they've been developing this thing for a while now and it's very much ready to go. Uh, it's gone GA and uh, Mike will be along to talk about all of that a little bit later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's news headlines with our good friend, Adam Boileau. And Adam, I guess the first thing we're going to talk about uh, this week is, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a theme in this week's show, which is Iranians uh, behaving badly. Uh, I did cover some of this with Tom Uren in last week's Seriously Risky Business podcast, but uh, the, the big news hadn't happened uh, when you and I sat down to record last week's show, which is that Albania uh, has severed diplomatic ties with Iran uh, due to a June, I think it was June or July, uh, cyber attack on Albanian uh, systems, government systems. And, you know, since then, uh, more has happened. Uh, the United States government has uh, imposed further sanctions on Iran over this. And uh, apparently there is a new attack happening right now, which is causing all sorts of drama in Albania. Yeah, the previous attacks were across a number of government systems. And the one that's happened in the last few days was targeting a system that manages uh, like people crossing the border into and out of Albania. Uh, and border crossing points uh, around the country have been stopped for a couple of days uh, because this particular system, the Total Information Management System, great name, um, was under attack and offline. Um, obviously, this uh, kind of conflict between Albania and Iran, you know, for those of us that are not familiar with the politics in the region like me, you know, really did come out of nowhere and um, we've got some you know kind of follow-up background stories about you know this um uh, about you know the reasons why this is un has uh, kind of unfurled how it is there's some uh, you know iranian uh, political resistance you know kind of opposition that's been located in albania for a while and it sounds like that's the you know one of the key interests of iran uh, you know in its neighbor uh, albania I mean, yeah, they were they were uh, planning some sort of conference in Albania, and uh, that's when all of this kicked off. And there were even um, you know bomb threats and stuff called in. The conference had to be abandoned. Yes, and that obviously you know didn't look particularly great for Albania, and you know, the resulting political furore has, um, I guess, really you know drawn our eye to to the the severity of the response or the scale of the response in a political arena for something that was cyber uh, and you know we've seen Iran say well you know you shouldn't get all uppity about it because you stuxneted us you know you everybody else um, which you know I guess we did stuxnet them but not exactly the same thing but yeah uh, there's a lot of uh, you know policy wonks uh, having a good time talking about what this means yeah well I mean it's you know is this is this cyber war 
<laughs> right and uh, <laughs> yes. you know i i still just there's there's one of tom's newsletters that he wrote a while ago for us you know the seriously risky business newsletter uh where he wrote about this concept of cyber embuggerance right which is just <laughs> making life hard it's like much more common than than actual cyber war and this certainly seems like an example of cyber embuggerance Yes, I mean certainly if, if bits of your government are failing to work, that's that's definitely a bit of a pain. Um, but yeah, the scale of the response, you know, throwing out, um, you know, the, the embassies and, and Iranian staff from the country, you know, it's that's pretty big politics, big rela- international relations. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Um, you know, I think they're in the middle of uh, this latest attack too. And, you know, we just have to see if we can expect more and what's Albania's response going to be. Not, you know, they've already done the diplomatic response, but technically how do they, you know, cope with this as it continues? So I'm sure we're going to be talking about this one again. But look, that's not the only Iran-related story that we've got to talk about this week. There is some really interesting research out of Proofpoint, actually, about a phishing campaign being run by APT. 42 aka uh, charming kitten or phosphorus and it's they're calling it like multi-persona phishing but it's very very clever which is that they uh, these attackers are basically spoofing emails from multiple identities into a thread so you know i might get an email from you uh that says hey man you know can you check out this attached document don't forget to run macros and then I might get a reply uh, into that thread from someone else I know saying, yeah, I had a look at it, all looks good, blah, 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 right? So it's a way of injecting some social proof into a phishing campaign or a spear phishing campaign or a, do you even call it phishing when it's malware? Phishing of a code exec, that's what yes, we call code it. code exec phishing. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's an, it, the idea is to get some uh, some social proof into these into these things by actually threading, threading the phishing, um, which I think is really, really cool. And I think it's going to be effective and we're going to see a lot more of it, sadly. Yes, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, as an attacker, you're going to do the thing that works. And if you have to convince people to click through security controls because the controls are getting good, then you have to apply the, the social avenue. And, you know, spoofing threads or, you know, we've seen, you know, lots of phishing campaigns that are, you know, very targeted, you know, going over a long period of time to build that social trust. And this is a way of doing it more quickly, you know, when you can impersonate a bunch of people and, you know, rely on those social relations. I, mean, I know it's a thing we've used on some engagements, you know, typically, you know, something like, you know, getting the local cafe in a building where our target is to email all the tenants in the building and say, hey, somebody left their bag, you know, yeah. and here's a picture of the bag. And a, and so, like, using the social trust, you know, in a particular physical place in this case um, to yeah. do that sort of thing. So, you know, it's a, you know, it's a lot, it's more work, right? And I guess it's an indication that, you know, their targets they're going after are valuable. In this case, it was, you know, people involved with, you know, nuclear research and stuff like that. That's a, you know, is a valid target for them and that they are willing to go and expend the time and the effort to do a good job of it. I don't know. I don't know that it's that much more work, man. You know, sending two emails instead of one uh, seems like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a, uh, a serious speed bump for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the... You know, doing the bare minimum that works, and we're so used to such low effort campaigns working. <laughs> Whoa, hold up! Look at these guys really working hard with their two email <laughs> phishing campaigns, right? Yeah. Mm. But you know, I, anyway, have a read of it of the write up from Jonathan Grieg uh, in in this week's show notes. It's yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff, and uh, yeah. Mandiant's also released a uh, bunch of uh, info on another uh, APT42 campaign, and there's a a link in the show notes there as well. But yes, uh, the Iranians have been very busy. Uh, Now, we've seen some interesting comments from a DOJ rep at the Billington Cybersecurity Conference this week, Adam, and um, they've been talking about their decision 
as you know, you know when the Hafnium campaign happened, right? And there were web shells on exchange boxes everywhere, and the DOJ wound up getting a you know getting a warrant uh, to go and log into infected machines and actually nuke the web shells. And there's been a bit of um, discussion about that at this conference, which seems you know it seems like the conversation has reached a pretty mature point. I, you know, we don't normally talk about panel discussions on something that happened you know <laughs> a year ago or whatever but uh it seems like this is the sort of thing we can expect the fbi to do again yes i think so and we we did a lot of hand-wringing back in the old days about you know the idea of of, of good worms or good viruses or you know this idea that you know, law enforcement could log in and, and actually go and do things and everyone was very down on the idea and i think it's People have been doing it in an underground way, or doing it in a you know less uh, in a more covert way, less overt way for a long time, and it's just effective. Uh, and you know when you have to respond to like in the case of Hafnium, you know Chinese actors up in, in thousands of exchange servers, and you need to move quickly and in a coordinated manner. There isn't really any other way to go about doing it, and it's I think it's good that we've got the level of maturity where there is a process. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe there's some risks to it, but you know, compared to the alternatives, which is what's sending emails to everyone's ISPs asking them to please patch their exchange. I mean, it's not, not going to happen. So, yeah, seeing them actually owning that, making the good choices, looking at the examples of other countries, you know, the Dutch have been been pretty big and, <laughs> you know, fixing things technically on the wire rather than going through too much process. And, yeah, that's just, it's the pragmatic way to do it. Um, and that's what we need these days. Interesting stuff. And the State Department in the United States has uh, suggested that its, you know, megabucks for snitching campaign is actually starting to pay off. Now, they they have a policy where they don't confirm whether or not they've, they've paid anyone, but they've basically said, well, you know, this thing is bearing fruit, I think is what they said, <laughs> right? So, so perhaps someone got their snitch bucks, man. Yeah, and I mean, the the level of disruption you get from just having a program like that in place, you know, and what that means for how people have to operate if they're worried about being snitched on, I mean, that's enough disruption in a way. But if they've actually found some people who are snitching and they've paid out uh, and maybe got some results from that, then... Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like an excellent plan, and if it's working, great. Yeah, this story from Suzanne Smalley uh, at Cyberscoop seems to suggest that Conti is a likely uh, victim of said <laughs> snitching in this case, because uh, everyone hates them, apparently. Yes, yes, yeah. they do. Uh, we've got another write-up here, another one from Jonathan Grigg. It's a write-up based on a report or a blog post from Chainalysis talking about the seizure of you know $30 million of crypto from uh, the North Korean attackers involved in that Axie, Axie Infinity crypto heist. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's a little bit vague in terms of uh, the precise mechanics of a lot of these seizures. Uh, and also, you know, a lot of this money has gotten away as well. But the fact that anything at all is being clawed back is significant, I think. Yes, I think this is being reported as the first time we've seen actual currency seizures from the North Koreans. You know, they've, they've been funding their nuclear weapons program, uh, you know, with stolen crypto for a while. So good job, crypto bros. Um and yeah, we haven't seen them actually, you know, get it taken back. Uh, Chain analysis have talked a bit about, you know, the exact mechanisms by which the North Koreans will launder uh, the currency that they steal and how they move around, how they cross chains and things. But yeah, the actual like seizure bit, everyone's a bit hand wavy about, you know, who's involved and exactly how it works, which, you know, I guess they're protecting their, uh, some of their trade craft. But yeah, it's good to see it clawed back. And, you know, 30 million out of the what, like 600-ish stolen from, you know, this Axie Infinity thing, you know, small bickies but it's a great start yeah it is a great start and I, I mean you know keep in mind that the north koreans were laundering this stuff through tornado cash and so yeah. what happened to tornado cash 
Yeah, exactly, right? That's another piece of the puzzle taken out of them. Now they're forced to do other things, presumably, that are you know more amenable to being seized. Yeah, and you know, if you're going to be the person running the next Tumblr, do you want to do that and get a, have to eat mm-hmm. a giant you know, sanction sandwich? I think not. Yes, yeah. They're definitely, they're applying pressure in the right way, I think, overall, which is, yeah, it's good. It's, it's not often we get good news, you know? It's, <laughs> it's nice. It's nice. Now, Peter Zatko, a.k.a. Mudge, uh, fronted the Senate Judiciary Committee today uh, to, you know, give his testimony on the uh, the, uh, the wickedness of uh, Twitter's security program. And, uh, look, he didn't really say anything new. Uh, I don't know that there was much, you know, there's much to be gained by talking about the testimony. But we did get one interesting little bit of info here, which is um, at the time that his disclosures first were made public, uh, they said that, um, you know, he had written that uh, there was an infiltration uh, among Twitter's ranks of, a, of someone from an intelligence agency. But we didn't know which intelligence agency it was. And there were some people out there saying, oh, he's getting confused because this was a regulatory thing in India and maybe it was someone from the Indian government and, you know, Twitter suing the Indian government to get around these regulations anyway. Uh, but no, he fronts the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, says that um, apparently the FBI alerted Twitter to an MSS, a Chinese MSS agent actually working there, which is, uh, yeah, probably not what you want. No, and, you know, given that the bulk of his complaints are around the lack of internal controls, lack of internal audit and access control and the widespread access that people who work there have, you know, getting someone inside there is a pretty natural way to go after an org like Twitter. So, you know, kind of seems in the wheelhouse of the MSS, like, you know, you'd expect, you'd expect them to in a way. Um, So, you know, not a surprise, but nice to have some, you know, some things to actually specifically point to and talk about rather than the rather vague place that we were last time. Yeah, it's funny too because it turns out that uh, when uh, Mudge was let go from Twitter, they paid him out and uh, he collected seven million bucks in a payout uh, when he was uh, gone. So, And that yeah. included a bunch of non-disclosure where he wasn't supposed to talk about the company after he left, but it had an exclusion uh, for government testimony. Yeah, so. I don't know if you can get people uh, into non-disclosure agreements that cover government testimony. I don't know yeah, that you can. Sure. But Probably, uh, I mean, you'd imagine not. But yeah, still. but I'm, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> we'll have to ask Bobby about that one one day. Yes. Uh, now, what else do we have here? Oh, yeah, Keith Alexander, uh, former head of NSA, <laughs> uh, General Keith Alexander, who is retired uh, from government service these days. Uh, he's getting sued for his role in what some investors allege was a pump and dump scheme involving the security firm uh, that that uh, General Keith Alexander was involved in, IronNet. Now, the first thing I did when I read this story is I actually looked at a historical graph of uh, of IronNet's share price, and it certainly does look a little bit pump and dumpy, Adam. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this was a company that was uh, went public through one of these like special purpose acquisition company, you know, things that lets you list without going through a whole heap of process. And Keith Alexander was you know, a pretty big part of the, you know, his face on the web page kind of thing, you know, marketing side. Um, and they had, a you know, a whole bunch of statements about how much money they were going to make and, you know, all the things that they were going to do. Uh, and, yeah, as you say, the, the share price does look, goes up very, very quickly. Uh, and then uh, the allegation is that he sold a bunch of shares, as did a number of other investors, uh, you know, relatively quickly, made a bunch of money. Uh, and now everyone who paid, you know, $30 a share and now it's worth two is sad about it, which, you know, I can, I can understand that. I mean, they did put out a press release projecting $75 million in ARR. And, you know, their total revenues now, I think, are like 
6.7 million bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's you can see why that, uh, you know, you would be salty about that. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a company with now a net income of negative $33 million a year, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, a pretty anemic market cap of uh, what in tech, in a tech sense of $220 million. So, you know, if you're going to put out press releases promising, uh, you know, $75 million worth of revenue a year uh, based on your connections with the former head of NSA, yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably going to expect some lawsuits. But um, I think this lawsuit was uh, actually originally filed in uh, April, but uh, The Intercept has the write-up there. And I'd, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. So people can go check that one out. Uh, apparently Conti, the Conti ransomware group is repurposing its tools to attack uh, uh, targets in Ukraine. They are using the Felina bug and, uh, you know, impersonating Elon Musk and all of that good stuff that, uh, you know, threat actors like to do. Uh, but what does it mean when someone says they're repurposing their tools for attacks against Ukrainian targets, Adam? So people have been, you know, understand where Conti have been attacking in the past and you look at how infrastructure is shared and, and how they're used in other campaigns. So seeing them pivoting from crime using the same tools towards more political targets and in some cases you know also doing crime while you're there because you know you've got to got to pay the bills um but yeah seeing them focusing on you know uh the ukrainian hospitality industry for example or um sending out fake uh, they had a bunch of emails that were like you need to update your starlink terminals because you know the russians will cyber you and then those are in fact emails with uh, you know malicious attachments and so on that then tie into their existing plumbing and uh, you know existing tooling so you know for a crime group to then pivot and focus so much uh, on ukraine i think that's the thing that um, that people are pointing out here uh, and you know, you were talking a second ago about Conti perhaps being a pretty good target for the, uh, you know, American bounty program. You know, stuff like this is probably why. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is something that we expected to happen sooner, right? Remember when the, the uh, Russia-Ukraine war kicked off, we expected that the uh, crime groups, well, certainly a lot of commentators expected that the crime groups would start um, doing things that were in Russia's interest. And we haven't really seen all that much of it right like just a bunch of ddos and like stuff like that but nothing serious whereas this looks like maybe the beginning of something what do you think yes i mean we were certainly expecting it more and you know i don't know from the outside it was hard to judge like you know how much of the cybercrime going on was ukraine to start with as opposed well, to russia or what the, the thing the first thing that happened was sort of a civil war in the in the, in the criminal yes. underground right yes yeah which i guess probably disrupted a bunch of things um and I guess there was a lot of infighting and a lot of, you know, kind of social distrust, you know, as they tried to figure out who was Russian, who was Ukrainian, who they could trust, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe that slowed the, the you know, kind of approach to actually doing, you know, doing cybercrime or doing, you know, politically focused stuff. So, yeah, I'm surprised that it has taken, that it hasn't been such a big thing. And it is interesting to see it now, you know, a group like Conti that has a pretty good track record, um, you know, out there hitting political targets. So, yeah, I, I'm surprised it took this long. Meanwhile, some quote-unquote hacktivists uh, have been uh, hacking into uh, R Russian TV broadcasts to broadcast, you know, Ukrainian, very moving Ukrainian propaganda. Um, I just, I, you know, this stuff, I doubt it's going to have much of an impact, but it's just very dystopian cyberpunk future stuff, right? So I had to mention it. Yeah, yeah. And it's also nice to see it done well. I mean, they were, uh, so this was like around St. Petersburg where some of the digital TV channels were taken over and they were doing it like on all the channels at once. Like it was, yeah. I, I saw a couple of screen caps, like it was, it was pretty pro. Someone actually sent me a video of it and it was interesting because, you know, it showed the like menu screen and they were going past every channel and it was yeah on, on every channel. So, um, yeah. you know, and, and slickly done propaganda as well. So, yes. um, you know, good job. 
We have yet another one from Jonathan Grieg uh, over at The Record, which is a story about a bug in some Mitel gear. So it's the Mitel My Voice Connect VoIP devices, right? It looks like some initial access broker had some O'Day in this and was just using it and using it and using it until the vendor discovered it and then pumped out a patch. The reason I think this is interesting is because initial access brokers are so well established now these type of bugs in non-mainstream software they found a way to monetize them right and i think we're gonna ha- we're gonna see a lot more stories like this one that's why i wanted to talk about this one what do you think adam Yes, I mean, the idea that you've got, you know, zero day for something and, you know, to make your return on investment for however you got that bug or whatever research you did to find it, you know, that really you want to compromise every one of those on the planet at once and then find a way to monetize them. And, you know, IABs have come up with a good business model for that, selling onwards access to, you know, ransomware operators or whoever else. Um, And I think, you know, seeing you know, a campaign like this. And this bug was, as you said, I think patched in, in June or July, but there was no public proof of concept. And, you know, the um, CrowdStrike who were looking at this particular campaign said, like, it felt like only one actor had access to this, you know, to this exploit and was then perhaps flogging it off to other people, suggesting an IAB. Um, it really makes you focus on, you know, the time to patch. I mean, that patch gap of how quickly you can get something patched and also having to assume that every time you see a bug, regardless of whether there's a public exploit or not, if it's the sort of bug that fits the criteria, you know, not quite mainstream device, on the edge of the network, et cetera, et cetera, that you kind of have to assume compromise now, which is a different I mean, this is not a new this is not a new thought, right? I just think no. I just think though that we're we're gonna see, as I say, I just think we're gonna see a lot more of this. Now that IABs are just so incentivized to get shells everywhere, why not yeah. sit down do some research into some reasonably popular MDM solution that sits at the edge of your uh, of you know enterprise networks. Find a bug in it, go collect your shells, and then monetize. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a great business model. Yeah, I mean, we saw we we've seen ransomware operators kind of fiddle around with some O'Day, uh, but you know this IAB stuff. That's yeah. Anyway, everyone can get where I'm going with that. Let's yes. see what happens. Yay, specialization. Uh, we got so we've got a really great write-up by Kevin Collier over at NBC News here, uh, based on some research from the Ponemon Institute, uh, talking about the effect of ransomware attacks on hospitals, uh, on patient care. And the it's survey-based research, but an awful lot of people who work at hospitals have suggested that mortality rates at these hospitals have gone up in when 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 ransomware attacks have happened, right? So we're actually starting to see uh, some concrete research here that ransomwareing hospitals actually kills people. Yes, because I mean it's always been hard to tie you know a death to a ransomware incident because it's a uh, you know there's only been one or two cases where you know they could draw a, a relatively straight line, but yeah, in terms of the overall impact, I mean it just makes sense logically that you know, hospitals are going to do a less good job, are going to make more mistakes, you know, when their technology systems are impacted. So it's good to see some actual data we can point to. Uh, And this is, you know, a pretty large scale survey uh, and asked some good questions around, you know, kind of what the experience of, you know, IT and security people inside hospital environments were as they went through those attacks. And there's been enough attacks now that those experiences are, you know, wide and varied enough to draw conclusions from. Yeah, and uh, just quickly to wrap up, you know, some of the more notable ransomware incidents of the week, uh, the Buenos Aires, like municipal uh, government has been ransomwared. Uh, A Kentucky city-operated ISP uh, has been ransomwared. 
Uh, and uh, some interesting research out of Sophos, again written up on the record, that says the average payout of these smaller organizations that get ransomware is like 200000 bucks. So that's interesting that we might be seeing a bit of a pivot toward, away from big game ransomware towards more of these sort of mid-sized organizations where you can get yourself a couple hundred grand instead of trying to you know, shut down critical infrastructure and then demand 30 million bucks. Yeah, and then getting, you know, all sorts of trouble with, uh, you know, various government spooky agencies up in your business. So, yeah, yeah. maybe smaller retail orgs, uh, you know, are an easier target. Um, this research also did say that uh, remediation costs overall were down. Um, they said perhaps, you know, insurers are getting more involved earlier. You know, maybe we have more experience responding to ransomware. Uh, so maybe that's a bit of good news. I don't know. But yeah, overall, if ransoms are up, uh, you know, they're making more money out of it. Now, Adam, uh, you know, I've seen variations of this story across my desk pretty continuously over the last uh, month or so, but I guess we should talk about one of them, which is that, uh, you know, attackers out there are still using Log4j, still hitting VMware gear, uh, which is using vulnerable versions of Log4j because people haven't bothered to update it. Uh, And it turns out, you know, there's still an awful lot of software out there that still uses the vulnerable version of Log4j. So this prediction that this was going to turn into a, a long tail bug with a you know multi-year shelf life uh, is proving to be correct, sadly. And uh, you know, in this story uh, I got in front of me, it, it, you know, it turns out that Lazarus Group, the you know the North Koreans, are actually using uh, this stuff as well. So yikes. Yeah, Lazarus up in energy companies via their VMware using bugs that you know should have been patched out a while ago. It's not it's not a great story, and I, yeah, we, we're going to keep seeing this just because it is such a ubiquitous you know uh, ubiquitous piece of code. And you know, I think we were both a little disappointed when our you know the world burning down from this didn't quite happen like we expected. But the long tail is still happening. Um, so yeah. Software supply chain and understanding, you know, components that make up your software. It's, it's boring, but damn, it's necessary. I just wonder how many people out there think that they have this handled and they don't. That's the thing yeah, that I probably, wonder, right? Probably. Uh, well, I mean, you know, parsing security update messages from, you know, people like VMware is really difficult. Like, they don't, they're not upfront generally with the details that you need, and it can be very difficult to map version numbers to reality. And, you know, maybe they installed it and didn't reboot it, you know? There could be something as dumb as that. Well, I'd be impressed at the uptime, uh, frankly, at this point. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Patreon has apparently uh, laid off its entire security team. And we've got some ex-Patreon security staffers like, you know, on on LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff saying, yeah, like they they fired us all. Whereas Patreon's putting out a, uh, you know, putting out statements saying, no, this has no impact on our security stuff because everybody's still working on security and whatever. A little bit hard to know what's really happening here, but people are upset. That's for sure. Yeah, and we've certainly, you know, seen staff cuts at, at quite a few internet orgs, um, you know, with uh, the economy being what it is. And security is one of those things that does, you know, when it works great, it doesn't look like it's making you any money. So you can see why it's attractive. But, you know, Patreon is just such a, it, it's a platform that handles a lot of, you know, it's things that people feel about, you know, they're, they're supporting stuff they care about. It's a, it's a pretty engaged user base. And mm. I can see them. I can see this backfiring perhaps more than they expected uh, just because it is, you know, it's a strange company in that, in the sense that, you know, what it sells is not, not normal. Um, 
you know, whether they've managed to outsource everything successfully or whether they've got enough, you know, automated security scanning. Maybe someone bought a, you know, an automated, you know, red team orator, you know, product that does it all magically for them and that's good enough. But I, mm, yeah. I mean, Patreon got owned pretty hard back in the day too because I used to have a Patreon and, uh, you know, Risky Biz listeners were contributing to that. And I I shut it down when we started making more money because I just thought, you know, that's e-begging when you're actually making okay coin just seemed a bit morally wrong. (laughs) But they got popped at that time and a whole bunch of uh, info uh, leaked out. So, you know, they've already had this happen to them once and you just really hope they know what they're doing. Yeah, well, may- maybe the security team was so great, they secured everything in our surplus to requirements. I mean, that, that could happen. <laughs> now, Matt Burgess over at Wired has an interesting write-up on a uh, anti-censorship system that's been cobbled together that allows people in Russia to reach uh, blocked websites. Tell us about it, Adam, because it is kind of, you know, it's kind of cool. Yeah, this is a project called Samizdat Online. It's a mechanism for circumventing, you know, censorship. And essentially it's a... Uh, you know, sort of midway between a f- like fast flux DNS bot platform and uh, you know like media syndication. Uh, so essentially, articles from you know media sites that are being censored are published or linked to from um, from a website, and then those links are dynamically generated and into new domains and kind of fast fluxed around so that. You know, once you've found your way into the into the network, into the Samizdat online system through whatever entry point of the day is, then you're able to go and, and browse and see a bunch of content um, that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. And it kind of just takes advantage of the fact that as a technical, like automated system, it can move faster than bureaucratic systems that would seek to then censor it. Uh, and in a world where everyone's already on Telegram or on you know some other platform where they can learn how to get into it, then it's you know very easy just to kind of keep everything moving around. So lower barrier to entry than something like Tor, where you have to have some software expertise. Like this is just in a regular web browser, and and off you go. Um, so it seems like a pretty like it's it's a solution that if you were a cypherpunk, you'd be like, oh, this isn't perfect and blah, 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 blah. But in the real world, actually is, is quite a sensible and, and pragmatic approach. Yeah, it is. And I, it really, I did find that interesting also that they're like, well, you know, it takes them a couple of weeks to squash our domains so we can be faster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, as for Tor, Tor can be blocked as well. So don't forget that. It's, it's not something that is particularly robust in heavily censored environments like China. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Now, uh, iOS 16 is out. Uh, Apple's iOS 16 is out. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really excited to see what the impact of passkeys on Apple devices is going to look like in the future. I mean, we've seen some sort of grumbly, ho-hum comments that they're not quite enterprise suitable or whatever. But let's just wait and see. Uh, what the use cases wind up looking like. You know, I, I, I'm kind of jazzed about this more than I expected. How about you? Yeah, no, me, me too, me too. I mean, having authentication that just works well, and I mean, and the pre-pass keys experience of you know, if you're using the iCloud keychain and Face ID and blah, 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 and you're on all Apple devices is already pretty smooth once you've done the account setup. But having you know, passkeys that are, you know, cryptographically robust, have all the, you know, advantages of, of FIDO style, you know, WebAuthn style authentication, and are just managed seamlessly for you by the platform, I think is, you know, because Apple's always about selling, you know, good user experience and, and user experience that other people would envy. I think we will see this, you know, pick up a whole heap of users and people will get used to the idea that passwords are not how you have to auth anymore. And we'll see that apply pressure to other vendors, other environments, you know, enterprise 
systems, much like we've seen, you know, sort of enterprise social media come into play because people expected that in their in their you know non work life, and that's kind of pushed through into the work environment. So yeah, I, I'm I'm interested to see how this works. I mean, Apple's done a lot of work making it slick, making it smooth, and you know, people are going to want to you know anything that lowers the barrier to someone signing up to your service. Everyone loves, so we probably will see it you know adopted by a bunch of people outside of just Apple. Yeah, yeah, I got to say, I, I love being able to download an app already. You know, Apple's UX is just so good compared to other stuff where you can just download an app and say, yeah, make me an account without revealing my email address. And it just, you know, scans your face yeah. and whatever, and it's done, you know. So um, this is just the extension of that, like hopefully onto the web, right? And um, yeah, that could be that could be very cool. So let's see where it all goes. Uh, now, Adam, we just uh, need, to, <laughs> need to introduce a section here very quickly. Posting dogs on the bird app are making Vatniks seethe and cope. And uh, it must be said, <laughs> it must be said that the really dumb idea of NAFO and just trolling Russian trolls with Shiba Inus has got, has like, it's, it's gone a lot further than I expected it to. It's being acknowledged by <laughs> Russian broadcasters like RT. There's a few of these like pretty prominent online Russian trolls who've actually just quit Twitter because of NAFO and you just think, well, well done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's going to be books written about, you know, this, this information campaign and, and information warfare. And then like, there'll be, there'll be academic studies written about dog memes. What a wonderful world. And yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think this has made any difference to the conflict. Right. But what I have noticed is that Twitter is a more pleasant place with like NAFO trolls on it. <laughs> yes, do, do you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like it's just a bit of yeah. a morale boost for the average Twitter user to just see that these pro-war trolls are just not like existing unchecked. It's just great seeing them hassled. Yes, yeah, it really is. And and like doom scrolling on Twitter is, is a miserable time. And this like doom scrolling the Ukrainian conflict, but with NAFO in your feed does make it less depressing. <laughs> and yeah. just feel less like, you know, we're about to start World War Three, even though we may be. Um but yeah, I mean, I, it's just such a wonderful, like, what can you do about it? Like, if you're, a, if you're a Russian, you know, a Russian troll or whatever, like, there's just nothing you can do because they don't take themselves seriously. They're just there for the lulls and the shit posting and making your life miserable. And there's just no way to counter it. Like, how do you argue a, a you know, a Shiba Inu wearing an army hat? Like, it's, you just can't. Yeah, and, and, and just seeing the, 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 the seething and the coping yeah. is just quite delicious where they, they're like some <laughs> NAFO account will be registered in Virginia, right? And they're like, look, see, it's CIA. And like, <laughs> that's just catnip for the for the NAFO dogs where they just say, yeah, sure. You know, we're CIA. Yeah. We love Lockheed yeah. Martin, whatever. You know, you can't, you can't, they're just so hard to own. And it's, Plus, it's such a wonderfully upbeat and well-calibrated <laughs> idea that I just, I'm really surprised yeah. at how well it's gone. And, you know, I've, I've dropped a link into a tweet from the 780th Military Intelligence Brigade, which is a cyber uh, unit, and I'll just read it. It's uh, Russian state-controlled media outlet RT accused NAFO of harassing and silencing pro-Russian voices online. For an online community like NAFO, hostile mention from an official propaganda outlet of its target is evidence that its ridicule is achieving the desired effect. I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is a tweet from a verified uh, US military uh, organization so just what a world what, what a, world. a world mate that's actually it for this week's news segment uh, pretty light week actually uh, for, for hard news thank you so much for joining me as always and we'll do it all again next week yeah we certainly will and I'll talk to you then Pat Ukrajina
That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Mike Wyasek, the founder and chief executive of Stairwell. Stairwell is a platform that ingests files from your organization, uh, your endpoints, your servers, whatever, and it lets you do all sorts of fun things with those files like Yara hunting against all of the stuff that you've collected. Now, I guess the thing that makes it so impressive to me, uh, it's actually the front end, which is extremely slick and has really good workflows and kind of reminds me of what the Iceberg team did for network detection and response. Um, Iceberg later got acquired by Gigamon uh, and and is still a, a going thing there. But yeah, you know, decent workflows for doing investigations and threat hunting and that sort of stuff. Uh, But as you'll hear, Stairwell has gone GA now, so you can actually buy it. And they have introduced some, some pretty interesting features, right? So you can just take a file hash, plug it into a box and say, show me other files that are similar to this one. And it will spit out some results thanks to some, you know, ML fairy dust in the background. So if you're doing threat hunting, you know, that's that's pretty useful. So I recorded a video demo with Mike last week, which is now on YouTube, and I've linked through to that from this week's show notes. So if you want to check that out, uh, yeah, please do. So anyway, uh, here is Mike telling me why they decided to move beyond Yara rule-based hunting on the platform. And uh, yeah, here's what he had to say. We got to a point where writing a good Yara rule takes a lot of experience. It's really easy to write a Yara rule. It's also really easy to write a bad Yara rule. And um, people start looking at rules of like, if I have a match, is this good or bad? And if your rule is bad, eh, it's hard to tell sometimes. So we were in this case where Yara is a core part, a core part of our platform inception and uh, people were using it. But we, this posed a couple of problems. How do we teach people how to write good Yara rules becomes challenging. And second, people who actually work in security who know how to write Yara rules are actually fairly limited as, a, as an overall percentage. Without getting into the economics of things, we're a startup. We're building a platform for, for companies to do something pretty novel. There's nothing out there that really works the way that we're operating in terms of pre-preserving files and scanning them and doing all of this stuff. We were sitting down trying to think about what can we do to make our platform more approachable for people at all levels, not just the people uh, who know do active threat hunting and they're actively digging through things like virus total on the daily. But how do we make something available for other people? And so we kind of had this, uh, this realization that like we have to figure out how to make people better at writing YAR rules very quickly for them to get more value out of our platform. And so that side project very quickly uh, grew over pretty much May and the first week of June into an all-out company-wide sprint to say, what if we remove Yara from the equation and we build a whole new way to search files? Instead of searching files based on a human writing Yara rules or even a script trying to generate Yara rules, what if we just let people say, hey, I got a file, here's a hash. Find me files like that one. And we turn this into a similarity-based thing that we're calling variant discovery. How, How do we make that work? And we took some pieces that we had been playing with as ways to try and uh, make certain systems uh, more efficient and more features in our platform more efficient. And we kind of combined them all together. And uh, the code name for this product was project was called Metaphor because it was trying to reason by analogy. Um, and we built that and we demoed it quietly at, at RSA in, in June. And it was fantastically well received. So we ended up, you know, we still support Yara. It's a core part of our system, 
But what if you could say, hey, here's a file. I have an alert in my sim. This file is bad. You drop it into Inception and you find every very similar file on every other machine in your enterprise for the beginning of your time on our platform. So yeah. you, can, you may just know about something bad today and say, oh, well, there's variants of that file on these other systems three months ago. And that's what we're kind of facilitating. So we're removing time as a barrier to detection and response by bringing in what was, you know, traditionally threat intelligence, threat hunting techniques, but bringing it down to the level of a tier one SOC analyst where they can do a threat hunt in three or four seconds. Yeah. And I, I mean, if you're in a SOC too, like that is really valuable because you can say, oh, okay, a similar file was on this box two months ago. What else have we seen out of that box lately, right? Bingo. And if you're in a place where you can get all of that info, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to save a bit of time. You're going to be able to zero in on, on stuff a bit quicker. I remember too, in earlier versions of your platform, you had some sort of um, uh, visual comparison tool between files, right? Yep. We, we, we still have that there. Um, the visual comparison thing that's really funny is when people use our platform right now, they'll say, oh, the variant discovery is powered by Yara. And like, no, no, Yara actually doesn't factor into it at all. And then they see the file, uh, the file visualization that we have, and they go, oh, we're using ML over the file visualization. We're like, actually, no, not at all. Um, all of that stuff exists almost independently to try and give you uh, a gut check on how good some of our variant analysis stuff actually is. So when you see, when you come in and you do a variant discovery search for a particular file, and we say, hey, here's some other files, we'll tell you, hey, variant number one uh, matches eight YAR rules. Of those eight, seven overlap with your original search term, uh, search file rather. And people will say, hey, is that, are you just using YAR matches there? Like, no, not at all. Like that's there to prove to you that, that this system actually works. Because um, that was, I mean, that was a previous iteration of doing stuff like, um, uh, you know, trying to identify variants, but the workflow was different, wasn't it? It wasn't just that you'd say, here's a file, go, go forth, search, find all the others. Exactly, exactly. And so the challenge is doing that fast and at scale. So like when people drop that in, the cool thing is not only are they searching the files that we've received from their company or their enterprise, and finding variants, we're simultaneously searching uh, several years worth of malware feeds that we've been collecting and aggregating as well. So you actually find variants inside your enterprise and outside your enterprise. And so that's a point where we're saying, hey, that tier one SOC analyst is now doing a, a enterprise level threat hunt as well as a global historic threat hunt all in one click, all in one place. Uh, but, you know, we should tell people, too, that you can still go Yara hunting with Sarewell, right? Because, uh, you know, so far we've been saying, oh, no, you don't need Yara for this, you don't need Yara for that. But you can actually do that, right? And that yep. was kind of like the early, um, you know, the early development of this thing was enabling you to do that sort of thing across a huge corpus of files, right? Ab absolutely. The original, you know, my, my master's degree was in information retrieval. So, like, you know, uh, CS, but always in, like, search engine design, indexing, clustering, all stuff like that. And as I said earlier, the, um, the idea, the technology that we started working with that powers the variant discovery was a side research project. And the side research project originally started off with how do I judge how good a Yara rules matches are? And so if you start thinking about a Yara rule identifies a set of files, the question is how distributed are those files in terms of their own similarity relative to each other? And so we started building ways that we can calculate that, right? Like how do we identify um, 
well, you know what? This rule matches a thousand files and they all look completely different from each other. Um, we started trying to devise ways to do that simply as an internal metric to give people feedback. How good is your Yara rule? And as we started tweaking with that, and then you had the economic uh, turn and we have, hey, we need to try and address, we can, how do we make it possible for, you know, maybe a company that has three IT people, one of them wears a security hat half, half, the, half the week, how do we make them successful in our platform? And that was like, whoa, we've been building this thing over here that if we change the use case, it becomes really powerful. And that was really the, the core engine behind the variant discovery system. So you've gone GA now, right? So people can buy it. Who is buying it? Because the organizations that would get the most value out of a, a platform like this are going to be the big ones with the socks, right? So, you know, how successful has that move towards smaller orgs been? I, I Look, I know it's early days, uh, but I'd imagine the people who are currently buying the platform uh, now that it's GA are your bigger ones. Yeah, definitely. I think like our, our initial customers are conversions from obviously early access design partners. Um are the, the, the thing that I find most interesting is there's, there, it's really people who are leaning in to acknowledging that current solutions don't address all of your problems. They're, they're CISOs who are um, aggressively uh, comfortable with embracing new technologies because it, fact of the matter is Gartner does not have a, a, a magic quadrant where we fit. We're not yeah, in they don't VR, have a magic quadrant set. for file analysis, right? Exactly, <laughs> it's not something that fits anywhere. So, you know, if you have, if 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 you are, if your if your security leadership wants to embrace something incredibly new and incredibly powerful, um, you start looking at this. As we talked with, uh, we announced in back in June a partnership with Cideris, uh, which is which is a a merge company from uh, FishTech and. Um, Hershevec Group, um, they formed to maybe in one of the U.S.'s, I think, largest uh, MDR providers right now. As, as we work with organizations like that that have a history of embracing new and emerging technology and then bringing it to customers, you're seeing a lot of interest. Um, I think we, when we demoed uh, in, a, in a hotel suite to, to a bunch of CISOs during RSA, um, one of the things that really kind of stood out was Every meeting ran over because people were so excited. Uh, we, we had, I remember one CISO, I have to stay nameless, but they were, for, again, for a Fortune 500 company, uh, flat out said, you know, I've been coming to RSA for probably 15 plus years at this point, and I'm excited for the first time right now. And like that's stuff that you don't hear from jaded security people, especially people who have been in like leadership roles for 15 years saying at RSA is that like, I am really excited you'll be hearing from us soon. And, and that's really exciting uh, to be bringing a new product to market because you always fight, you always, you know, you're always facing this challenge of will people respond to what we're trying to build? And you realize that, no, they are and they, and they will. And that's really exciting. I think the uh, state where we are now is basically getting people through the sales process, you know, getting, getting them trials, getting them onboarded. Uh, but the response has been great so far. Yeah. So where are you at with the uh, file collection side of it, right? Because I know early on you had like a lightweight sort of client for Windows boxes. You know, I think it was a bunch of PowerShell scripts and then you wound up moving to like a really lightweight uh, endpoint agent. But the plan was always to sort of plug into other stuff that people might already have on their endpoints like EDR, CrowdStrike, whatever. Has that been successful? Can someone actually now start populating a stairwell with files um, from off-the-shelf EDR, or are you still not quite there yet with that? 
We have it. We have an integration with um, Carbon Black Cloud has a feature on Windows that that works called the Universal Binary Store. We have an integration with that. So if you are running Carbon Black Cloud, that is a point click option to turn on. Um, there's a lot of caveat statements on there in terms of what it actually collects on the on the EDR side there. Um, but that is a, that is a system that we can collect files from. Uh, primarily right now we are relying on people using our what we call file forwarder and what you uh, kindly refer to as yet another agent last time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, as well, a, I mean, uh, there's always a sticking point, right? With 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 agents, right? Like, come on, there's CISOs listening to this. They hate agents. They hate oh. like as soon as you say, "Oh, we need another agent," it was like, "Well, we're in the middle of a 12-year agent, uh, sorry, a 12-month agent consolidation program right now." So sorry, can't do it. You know, like I, that's that's something you're running up against. I, I'm guessing every week. I, I think what you have is your 12-year misspeak, misspeak there about the 12-year agent process reduction. Um, it's probably I think more it's accurate actually probably anyway. more yeah. accurate than the 12-month <laughs> one. I think everyone's in a perpetual state to get rid of agents. And, and, and you know, in, in, in that sense, it, it comes up. I, I think the biggest challenge here is, like, it's not necessarily agents have a bad name because they slow down your machine, they make people complain, um, you know, I one of my hobbies is photography. And so whenever I have, if I use Lightroom or Photoshop on a machine and I'm opening an image that's 80 meg or 100 megabytes, yes, you notice your machine get really, really slow. I think by the nature of how our stuff works that we do not do deep scanning of, or processing of files on device. It's simply, hey, there's a new executable file, hit disk. It's, you know, you read a few bytes to confirm that and and then um you know send it off, off. it goes right yeah yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's it's the impact of that most people don't even ever notice it's there i'm i'm we're running it on our own hardware as a dog fooding process and it's very rarely i've ever even acknowledged that it's even on the machine i sometimes even forget so so it hasn't you know, been much of a sticking point or but i'm just guessing there's some of those orgs that just have that blanket rule right yes yeah, so, i mean some orgs just have a blanket rule uh you will often run into orgs that simply say uh if you want to add a new agent you have to remove two um, yeah. which, which is actually really interesting because it's like, instead of adding something that's like almost like a micro agent, incredibly small and lightweight, they just um, winding up with a gigantic bloated agent. Yeah. That can do everything. Yeah. No, I know. There's I know. all this behavioral ML stuff on device. And you're like, well, that, that's just going to make your problems worse. <laughs> so it's like, it's no, like, don't do that. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. All right, look, um, we're going to wrap this one up now. But uh, for those who are interested, you can actually see a demo of what we've just uh, talked about. Mike and I recorded a YouTube demo last week. It's edited. It's up on YouTube right now. So you can go have a look uh, at that and see a walkthrough of the tech. Uh, you know, pretty cool stuff. Uh, actually a decent watch. So uh, do go have a look at that. Mike Wysek, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That was Mike Wyasek, the founder and chief executive of Stairwell there. And uh, yeah, if you're doing Threat Hunt, do go check out the demo of Stairwell. Uh, it's great stuff. Like, even if you're not doing Threat Hunt, it's an interesting demo, right? It's tech that demos well, probably worth watching. Uh, but that's it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Seriously Risky Business in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.